Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. I'm excited to have a returning guest on the podcast, my friend Emma Edwins. Welcome to the podcast, Emma. Thank you. Um, Emma was on episode 598, and I'm going to read the episode description. You can, if this is the first time you're hearing Emma's story, you could go back to 598 and hear her full story, which she'll share on that episode and less so on this episode. Uh, My friend Emma Edwins, a master's degree in marriage and family therapy, a licensed clinical counselor, shares her remarkable story. Emma starts with the decision to join the church while in college in Colorado, then talks about why she left the church for about 10 years, and then talks about addressing her gender dysphoria, which led Emma to legally, socially, and medically transition to a woman. Emma talks about how happier she is since transitioning and how she longed to return to the church. Emma, who lives in St. Paul, Minneapolis, talks about her decision to go back to church and the warm reception she is receiving from reward, including attending Relief Society. Emma talks about why she decided to go back to church and her testimony of the Our Restored Doctrine. Emma also talks about the challenges transgender Latter-day Saints face, including her desire to attend the temple, which is currently not possible. Emily has a YouTube channel called Stories of Latter-day Faith, and we'll link to that, listeners, in this um, podcast show notes, which features conversion stories of younger people joining the church. Thank you, Emma, for being on the podcast. So that's a little bit of background if you're hearing Emma's story for the first time. And um, I use she, her pronouns to refer to Emma. I asked that before we went live, and I did that last time to make sure I get that right. And um, and I think what Emma's going to do in this podcast is kind of, she probably got some feedback from the first podcast and from overall feedback about walking this road as a transgender Latter-day Saint or even, even more broadly being transgender and just wanted to provide further education to me and you fellow listeners um, so that we can better support um, our transgender friends. So is that okay for an introduction? Yeah, yeah, that works. Okay, it's you're on. Um, so I said, you know, before we started, like I I've been racking my brain all week trying to figure out like what what exactly do I want to talk about on this? Um because there was a lot of different directions I could have gone with what I was wanting to cover. Um but I think my initial inspiration for wanting to come back was you know, just sort of hearing that there was maybe some pushback or some, you know, doubts being expressed after probably not just my interview with you, but, um, you know, just sort of pushback that you get sometimes from members of the church after you interview or talk to a trans member. Um, And that just... It made me a little sad, not surprised, but it made me a little sad and just made me think like, you know, there's an opportunity to continue to, you know, ask hard questions. So I'm a therapist by trade, as you said, and, you know, a big, big part of my job is asking questions. And a lot of times I'm asking my clients or my patients questions that I don't know the answer to. 
myself? Like they can be really sort of as existential questions, if you will. Um, and I think I've sort of accepted that at least at this point in my journey with the church is my job right now is to just ask the hard questions, the questions that maybe don't have answers, don't have very obvious answers. Um, and so in the last interview, I talked about, you know, wanting to have a calling, wanting to be able to go to the temple, both of which are, one of which is the temple one is very much like, no, you can't go because you've decided to transition. Um, the calling is more of a question mark, but I recently did meet with my stake president and you know, he, I won't go into too many details about that conversation, but I think it was just the big takeaway I got from the conversation was that a lot of the questions I ask around this, people in the church don't have the answer to, like the authorities in the church don't have the answers because I, I don't know that we've been asking these questions for very long. And so it's sort of like new territory in that way. Um so it doesn't surprise me that you, Richard, would get, you know, some pushback of people like, well, wait a minute, like, why are you doing this? Why are you interviewing these people? Why are we, like, being accepting? Um, <clears throat> so that's sort of, like, my motivation. That was my motivation for wanting to come back. Um, now, one of the things that got brought up more than once by different people that I don't believe even knew each other was um, there's a book called Irreversible Damage. Oh, I can't remember the full title. Something about the way the transgender craze is seducing our daughters. It's by Abigail Schreer. Schreier? Not sure how to say her name. Um <clears throat> And it got brought up to me, and it, it was something I'd never heard of. I'd never read this book. I wasn't aware of this person at all. And I am not somebody who, if they ask me about something, that I'm just going to be like, well, I'm not going to go look into that because it might contradict my worldview. That's not me at all. I am very much like, okay, this is a very different, probably, opinion. And my initial reaction to sort of reading the, like, the byline of the title is like, oh, this is going to be very, like trans-exclusionary, like, you know, I sort of had my initial judgment and I was like, okay, no, I'm going to, I'm going to look deeper into this. And now I didn't read the book. I won't say that I did, but I did watch an hour and a half interview with the author where she goes over kind of point by point, the main premise of the book, the sort of the research that she cites, the like, what was driving the questions that she was asking and sort of the conclusions that she was making. It also sounds like she sort of takes a similar approach of her job is to just ask the question, not so much to draw the conclusion, you know, wants her readers to sort of draw their own conclusions in a way. Um, and for those who aren't familiar this is probably not going to be the greatest summary, but I'm going to try to summarize the book if I can, if that's all right. Um, she is a reporter who 
essentially recognized or started to notice that how do I put this? So the word transgender was not something that was like in common vernacular, you know, 25 years ago, right? Most people didn't even know what that meant. They didn't know the difference between transgender or transsexual or transvestite or, right? These are all like interchangeable terms to most people. So there's this idea of because there's more visibility than it stands to reason that more people who experience gender dysphoria would become aware that this is actually like a medically researched documented condition and that they can then seek care. So greater visibility means that there likely will be more people who potentially seek gender transition services, right? So just, just sort of in a logical like... If nobody knows what cancer is, we're not going to develop treatments for cancer, right? So, um, so you know, in this book, she's sort of identifying that the percentage of increase of individuals coming out as transgender was that there was a disp- disparity between people who were assigned female at birth identifying with you know either as men or just identifying having gender dysphoria versus people assigned male at birth coming out as having gender dysphoria that logically one would think that they would increase about the same amount but that what she found or what studies have found is that there's significantly higher like i can't remember the exact number but i think she said it was like three or four hundred percent difference between how often how much more frequently young you know assigned female at birth adolescents are identifying having gender dysphoria or having a desire to transition genders even though they didn't necessarily demonstrate some of the the hallmark features of, you know, getting an actual official diagnosis of uh, gender dysphoria. So, like, that's sort of the the premise of, like, why she started her book, why she started looking into this and investigating it. Um, and I think, you know, she found a lot of things that I found disturbing, obviously, because it sounds like there are many places in the world, not all of them, um, but there's many places that, like, the the entry into gender-affirming care was way easier than it probably should have been. Um, and that was something that, like, coming from an outside perspective, like, I can see why this would be super alarming. Coming from an inside perspective, I can see a little bit of why maybe this would happen. But, you know, in my experience with the doctors that I know and that I work with, that I have referred patients to, that is not the case. Um, now, Minnesota isn't the same as everywhere else in the world, but so this book really kind of just looked at like are these you know adolescent girls if you will you know are they really 
equipped to make these really lifelong, irreversible changes? And why is there, why is it so easy for some of them to get into gender care and to, you know, start taking hormones or taking hormone blockers and sort of the consequences of that? Because many of these young women later on realized, oh, I don't actually have gender dysphoria. I don't actually want to be on hormones. And now I've done these things to my body. And this book was brought up to me, like I said, by multiple people that I don't believe knew each other, um, completely independent of each other. So like, this is something that I think is sort of maybe making the rounds and not just the church, but maybe, you know, people who are more reticent to really readily accept transgender people. I think this book is sort of making the rounds. And I don't think her intent was to, you know, add vitriol to this. And I think some of the consequence is that that is sort of what's happening with it. Um, but I wanted to just sort of address that. I do think she makes some valid points in it. Um, I do think that I myself as a clinician have come across adolescent, you know, assigned female at birth individuals who identify in the, you know, trans type community who based off of things that they tell me, don't meet diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria. So, like, I have seen this. I have come across this sort of phenomenon that she really, like, shines a, a light on. So I do think that there is some truth to that. And I think even in the last um, podcast that you did, Richard, on your own where you were talking about sort of your experiences talking with trans people you kind of bring up that there you know there's this there are situations where people um you know aren't experiencing what we would call long term or i'm not going to say genuine because I, I don't want to qualify it that way, but I think long-term is a good way to put it of, you know, there's people who experience some sort of gender confusion that aren't actually experiencing long-term gender dysphoria. And that I think gets weaponized a little of like, well, look at these people who didn't actually experience it. And then they make these decisions. And so there's sort of this like, well, then we shouldn't let anyone do it. And that, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that train of thought. Um, it's really good, Emma. Um, I don't know if you had to keep going or you want me to share some thoughts. Oh, please do. Please share thoughts. Because, <laughs> I mean, trans people talking about this space a lot better than a cis guy, but um, I, I just, I like, this is such a difficult space, listeners, because um, 20 years ago when we were talking about gay gay men and lesbian women, that was very politicized. And now, I think 20 years later, there's gay men and lesbian women in both political parties, and we've sort of moved on from this being highly politicized. We've even, as a church, supported the Marriage for Equality Act. It doesn't change mean our doctrine. We're just allowing 
gay people and lesbian people to choose in a pluralistic society their path, best path forward. And um, I think we're kind of at that stage now where there's a lot of political discussion in a lot of states about this. And, and I think it takes, Emma shares so much grace because she's got her own personal story. And I just recognize the courage it takes. And I get tenderhearted because she's got her own personal story, but she's not saying that should be your story too. And in her professional work, she's not saying, do it like me. Um, that takes a lot of maturity as a professional to say, let's still go through the diagnostic criteria and see if this is long-term gender dysphoria. And use the word weaponize, which I've seen used a lot, where somebody's story is then, in a, especially in a political setting, sort of invalidating everybody else's story. So there are people that have detransitioned, and those are real stories. And, um, and, and for whatever reason, they transition without long-term gender dysphoria. And we don't want that to happen in society. And so those people detransition, and sometimes they share those stories and they're helpful. But then if it invalidates um, other people that have a different experience, then it's not helpful. And so I just think there's so many different stories in this space and, and there's nuance. And, and I love this quote from one of my institute teachers. In some matters, it's better to be intellectually uncertain rather than superficially sure. This will grieve us a great deal to be certain about while maintaining the humility to learn. So I've, I think we should listen to lots of trans people um, if we're in a position of policy or, or for a parent or a local leader or a politician. And we may still come to different conclusions, but listening to cis people um, find the best path forward for trans people is not nearly as good as listening to trans people or even equally as important as having trans people in position of where they can their voices are heard either because they're valued or because they're in positions of authority, which I think is a good thing. I think that's part of creating Zion is having this diverse group of people in our congregations and in our leadership. So back to you, Emma. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, sort of zeroing in a little more on the weaponizing, um, there's this, <laughs> This idea that I've come across, and I told you this before we started, but, you know, I've been working in transgender rights and advocacy and equity for a long time, probably better part of a decade, and never have That's I eternity. Across... That's eternity in this space. <laughs> I think I'm pushing eight years now. <laughs> it's a long say, time. Something like that. Um. There's this like, and I, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna call it how I see it, and people don't have to agree with me if they don't want to. But there's this really like politicized rhetoric of like grooming that there are people out there grooming our young people to be gay or trans, and that they have this sort of like. The gay agenda, if you will, <laughs> which for those who are not part of the queer community, 
the gay agenda is something that people in the queer community find very funny because we're like, we can't even agree on what we want for breakfast. What do you mean we have an agenda? Like the queer agenda is let's go have brunch with some like drag queens present like that. That's the queer agenda. So this idea that there's this like malevolent force out there, this sort of boogeyman that's trying to convince our children to become transgender to me is to me personally is a little absurd, but I think that, you know, this book sort of, I think she I don't think she intended to sort of add fuel to the fire of that sort of like grooming boogeyman idea, but I think in some ways that she may be dead of just like, why are young women, you know, wanting to transition gender so badly? And And in the interview that I watched with her, she did it with, I forget his name, he's a psychiatrist, but they talked for about an hour and a half. It's it's a good interview if anyone's interested and doesn't want to like read the whole book. Um, you know, they talk about like what are the reasons that this would be. And she sort of takes a step back and says, like, you know, I'm not gonna guess what the reasons are. I'm not gonna postulate that. I'm just gonna sort of ask the question and you can come up with your own reason for what you think is happening. But um I, when I was preparing to come and talk today, last night, I had a pretty extensive conversation with a very, very good friend of mine from my institute days. Um, he is now a medical doctor. And, you know, we talked about sort of this idea of like, that there's these people out there that like if we allow you know trans people to be part of the church then they're going to try and convince our children that they're trans too and and i don't i like i don't know that that's really the case i mean i'm here as a trans person who does gender affirming therapy and i'm not even pushing for that because I very much take a a more conservative approach of like take it very slowly I think you did a really great job explaining sort of your ideas of how to progress with this that you know going slowly is important this is a major life decision and if there are spaces where medical providers are just opening the floodgates for this, then yeah, I agree that there should be some stuff that we need to talk about of like, how do we put safeguards in? Not how do we stop people from having access altogether? I don't agree with that. But how do we put in safeguards so that we don't have 15-year-old, you know, assigned female at birth teenagers making lifelong decisions that they're going to regret? Like, I agree that that makes complete sense. I just don't know that taking this very extreme belief that there's some nefarious agenda out there trying to push this. I I just don't know that that's the right way. I don't know that that's a reasonable way. That sounds like a very fear-based approach. And in my experience, fear-based approaches are rarely, rarely on the right side of history. So, Well, Well said, Emma. 
I love this quote from Brene Brown. We may have shared it in the earlier podcast. Common enemy intimacy is the tr- opposite of true belonging. If the bond we share is simply you hate the same people, the intimacy we experience is intense, immediately gratifying, and easy way to discharge our outrage and pain. It's not fuel for real connection. So I just, I, I feel for all my friends that are trans because they're in the middle of this crossroads. And um, here you are, you know, walking this road and also a therapist in this road. And I hope everybody caught, you're not asking everybody to follow your path. And I think that's what, yeah. and so I just, I hope we can reduce the the vitriol in this space and recognize that this grooming language, we've used it in my lifetime in multiple areas. It's not a new thing, um, especially in queer spaces. And um, we're not using it with gay men like we used to. We used to talk about same-sex marriage and that would groom. I just don't think straight people are going to become gay. Now, I think, um, just like you're talking, somebody that feels a desire to transition, they need to find, they need to be diagnosed with long-term gender dysphoria and then go slow. And um, there is perhaps sometimes different things at the bottom of the iceberg that a good therapist like you can help them get to that may not be long-term gender dysphoria, uh, but invalidating everybody's experiences. But there are some people with long-term gender dysphoria that gender-affirming care, even as minor children with their parents' support, I like parents being involved, can be life-saving, as you know. And so there's just nuance in this space. But for some people, it may be the gender-affirming care may be their path to to reduce suicidal ideation. And for others, it may not. So it's just a very individual story. And you need good, trusted therapists, adults, and the church. The church has a website called Transgender. We'll link to it in the show notes. It doesn't link to studies about detransitioning there. It doesn't link to either any political statements. It talks about love and concern and support and talks about the church's statements that Emma knows well. And it sounds like your priesthood leaders and your know and just what they can and can't do. And we're all just navigating that. So, but the church's website doesn't use the political you know, divisive language that we sometimes see. It's, it's not like that. So I think we as Latter-day Saints should model what the church's website says, which is love and compassion and support and that people belong. And there's church policy around this that we're all, that I support, but and, and your leader sounds like they support. We're just trying to navigate the best way to support you as we're better understanding this space. So I'm talking too much. I want you to talk more. No, no, that's, um, I remembered, I sort of got derailed in my thought when I was talking about my friend, um, my, my medical doctor friend, but, you know, he brought up a really good question of, well, if this is the case, if this, you know, the evidence that Abigail Schreer has found is, you know, authentic or authenticated, then, you know, if it's not long-term gender dysphoria, then what is it? And I'm not going to necessarily go into what I think it could or couldn't be, but, you know, what is it about 
a woman's experience in this 21st century that would make so many young women not want to be women anymore. And that's all I'm going to say. I'm just going to ask that question and I'm going to leave it there. Um, I think it's, even if, even if it's, you know, they're not transgender, even if that's like a, aha, see, they're not a transgender, I was right. Even if you're right, quote unquote, about that, like, you're still missing the point that there's something going on that would be behind this. This doesn't just happen out of nowhere. So, and I don't believe that it's some sort of like hidden behind closed doors agenda i think there's something else going on but before i make too many enemies on here i'm going to move on if that's all right <laughs> good job you've done a good job <laughs> i the other thing i wanted to sort of i guess examine a bit further um is you know sometimes i've i've had people you know i think i brought this up in the last one say that like i'm saying god made a mistake or you know that like people love to really especially people in the church they really want to you know jump straight to proclamation is it proclamation of family to the world i can't remember the name that's good enough exactly <laughs> it's got a lot of working <laughs> names we know what you mean um you know, they want to jump to that of it's, you know, a man and a woman, that everything is very binary. It's binary, binary, binary. Um, and, you know, the temple is very binary. Um, you know, there's just sort of this like absolutism about the binary. And that is something that I think is what I run into a criticism I run into of like, well, especially when you start looking at people who aren't trans woman or trans man, but who identifies non-binary or gender fluid or gender queer, right? You start getting into these other identifiers that don't meet those binary standards and, you know, things can get a little maybe overwhelming for someone who's not used to that. Sometimes even for me, it's been overwhelming as I've interacted with people throughout the years of trying to assimilate all the understanding and knowledge of the various ways that humans will identify. Um, but there's just sort of this like very white knuckle clinging on to the binary. And that's something that I think makes sense that 99% of people are binary. 99% of people never, ever question their gender. Never. Not once. And the people who do question it, even maybe only about half of them actually make any sort of decision to do anything about that. So, like, it makes sense to me why it would be tempting to just be like, oh, no, there's the absolute binary, but... There's not. And what I want to bring up, and I, I've tried to figure out how I want to bring this up because I want to sort of, again, ask a question or present an idea for people to think about. Like, I'm not here to 
you know, tell everyone this is absolutely what you should believe. But I just want to like offer a healthy amount of skepticism, not not a anti-church amount of skepticism, because I love the church. I love being part of the church. That the that is not my intention to bring people away from Christ, but to just really question our assumptions. Um and when we look at the binary and the church handbook, I meant to look at it again. I know the church handbook does talk about people who are intersex or individuals who have quote unquote genetic defects that cause issues in their development or production of androgens or sex hormones. Um, there's a uh, syndrome called, called androgen. Androgen Intolerance Syndrome, AIS, I think that's what it's called. Um, And it's very rare. I'm not going to say that this happens often, but there's probably about three or 400,000 people in the world right now who have this. And if we had someone who had this syndrome, so please do your own research, go look this up, read about it. Um, I'm going to do a very, very brief discussion of you know this is somebody who if they have full because there's full and partial ais if they have full ais they have xy chromosomes so they have male sex chromosomes right you know women are xx men are xy there are other xx xxxy there's lots of different variations there which sort of also speaks to there not being a binary but <clears throat> this person was born with a, a certain genetic disposition that makes it so that their body cannot absorb testosterone can absorb or can't produce testosterone even though they are genetically biologically if you want to use that term male and because their body has this they will develop female anatomy and when we step back and we think about okay here's the binary and the church says that there's only men and women and that we have an absolute gender what do we have like how do we deal with this person and uh, this is just a hypothetical, right? Like, how do we view this person? Because on the outside, and from any sort of, you know, non-technical observation, they're going to present as a woman. They're going to look like a woman. They're going to develop female anatomy. And would we treat them as women in the church? Would they be able to hold a calling and go to the temple and be sealed to a man if that's what they wanted? Or are they a man because they technically have male genetics? And I just, I I don't necessarily have an answer for that. And I know that like chances are this is not something that probably happens very often, if at all, in the church. But I just really want to point out that this sort of like dogmatic adherence to there's only these two sexes is not true. It's just not. And I know what our doctrine says, and my my thoughts are that, you know, our doctrine is 
human's best understanding and interpretation of what God teaches us. Right. I I don't think that this would be a question mark for Heavenly Father. I think he would know exactly what we should do. It's just that we as humans are imperfect and we don't know what to do. And I don't know if any of that is making sense, but I just really want to like question this idea that if we are going to prevent people from participating, prevent people from coming, prevent people from being included because they don't fit a binary, but the binary isn't something that's actually real, it's just something that we like adhere to, then are we actually living Christ-like values? Are we actually showing them Christ-like acceptance, or are we adhering to a presupposed belief that we have about the world? I like that, Emma. I know listeners, when I was open to learning about this space, that the inner six um, things that Emma is sharing um, really moved me because I recognize that because we can sort of understand why someone's inner six when you go through the chromosome makeup that Emma just walked through and then what that means for that person and, and how we become medically involved in that situation. And I think we can all kind of understand that. And so then it, for me anyway, listeners, it opened my mind and maybe my heart that there's more complexity here than I first realized. And what other experiences are people feeling? Um, and about that same time, I watched the movie Harriet Trubman. Tubman, sorry. <laughs> um, this isn't a trans movie. It's about, you know, <laughs> her work to free black slaves. And I, as I left that movie, I wondered listeners would, knowing what I know now, I would want black people freed and I'd be on the side of the white and the Northern States. But would I have been if I lived in those days and where would I have been in the Salem witch trials with all that, you know, that, that jar, that vitriol going around and, would I have participated or would I not? And I don't know, to be honest. I hope I would have made good decisions. It's easier to make the right decision looking back on history. So it makes me want to pause and be open to learning. And are we at the beginning stages of learning something that in perhaps 20 or 10 or 30 years will have more sort of scientific understanding why this very narrow group of people, but important not narrow because they're narrow-minded, it's, it's a segment of the population, feels long-term gender dysphoria. And will we walk, will 50 years from now, there'll be a, a movie and we'll all walk out and say, I wish you could go back um, to this day and say, the people that experience this, I wish you could go back and just show more grace. And so, you know, the I, I believe Emma's experience and believe the family, a proclamation of the world. I it, To me, I don't, I don't lose anything by honoring Emma's experience listeners and validating this is how she feels and supporting and standing our leaders and the family proclamation. And so I just hold all those things in my heart and in my head. And I go back to the church's website, transgender showing Christ-like love. It's, it's called, you know, showing Christ-like loves for all of God's children 
it doesn't talk about this binary narrative. It is creating space and that, you know, people feel this way and it isn't, so it could just realize what it's not doing. (laughs) It's not pointing the family proclamation and saying, you've either got to be a man or a woman and feel that way. It is recognizing for some people, they feel this way. So the church, I think, is trying to create space and understanding and recognize we don't know everything. So what we do as rank-and-file members is listen to people's stories and honor their story, even if it's different than our experience, and realize that perhaps we're just learning something now. So that's kind of, I like the intersex, because it really helped me, Emma, just kind of be more open that what else don't I know about people in this space, and I should be careful to pass firm opinions without taking the time to be willing to learn. Right, and it's and when you know, I sort of had put feelers out to other people in this space of like, I'm coming back on here, and I'm going to talk. Is there anything that you know gets brought up or gets talked about or doesn't get talked about that would be good to talk about? And I, and one of the things was just sort of the invisibility of intersex people, and now intersex individuals aren't. They don't happen super often, but it is more frequent than even the AIS. And it, you know, it really just sort of, if we assume, and I think most of us in the church do, that God doesn't make mistakes, that he doesn't send us here to be born in the bodies we're in, and say, oops, I messed up with that one. You know, that one has a genetic defect. If if we really do believe that, you know, he doesn't make mistakes and that we are put in the bodies we're put in, you know, how do we rationalize this, like, adherence to a binary when he's intentionally putting people in bodies that have ambiguous or multiple sex organs? that don't fit into that binary what are we supposed to do with that and again i don't have necessarily an answer but i just sort of want to ask the question of like is the binary what god teaches or is it what we have assumed and i i tend to land on the second half that i don't believe that god teaches that there's a binary um i mean in a way yes there's sort of this idea of there was the the day and the night and there's the sun and the moon and you know there's sin and saint like binary is heavily steeped in christian um, cultural um discourses which i'm not going to get into that i can talk about that for hours because i exam i looked at that a lot in grad school of like social discourses and but is that what God teaches or is that what we sort of have supposed? And, you know, there there's a movie that I watched that I doubt many people who are members have probably seen it because it, I watched it when I was not attending church and it is, it's not a family friendly film, but, um, 
it's it's called Prometheus and it's it's set it's like a science fiction horror kind of film but there's this line in it where they're flying to a different planet and they're going to land on the planet because they're trying to find the sort of like alien civilization and as they've entered the atmosphere and they're sort of flying around trying to figure out where they want to land one of the scientists or anthropologists um he says over there land over there god doesn't draw in straight lines and that is something that has always landed resonated with me so even taking the film away but just this idea of god doesn't draw in straight lines he doesn't create in straight lines and when i was right before coming on here i found this wonderful wonderful quote from a um, he's an episcopal priest so my hope is that people won't just automatically dismiss him because he's not part of our church but this is somebody who very much is dedicated to christ is i mean he's dedicated his life to christ and to the gospel um as he understands it of course so I just hope people won't automatically dismiss it because I think what he has to say is really great. His name is John Richardson. Um, I think he's in New Jersey. And he was talking about this movie, actually. And he, he brings up this quote of God doesn't create in straight lines. And he says, quote, it, it's true, isn't it? God doesn't create in straight lines. The shapes are always more complex. There are gentle curves and sharp edges. There are cracks and crags. Humans, on the other hand, tend to be more comfortable with straight lines. We like to see all that lies before us as far as we can. Twists and turns engender fear. They feel unstable. Straight lines make us feel assured and safe. But the truth is, fear is normal. Un as normal as the odd angles and turns that appear throughout God's creation. God doesn't create in straight lines, and the world and our experiences within it aren't as safe and predictable as we might like. In the church throughout the world, we're living in a climate of fear. The straight lines that we thought we'd built for ourselves and for our futures aren't holding up anymore. The expectation of what church is and should be as it was experienced in the generations before us is proving to be untrue for our time. Some people are even beginning to conclude that those clean and straight paths that we built are keeping us from really walking with God. After all, God doesn't build in straight lines. Too often we keep trying to walk those same straight lines laid out by our parents and our grandparents, but more and more, we're finding that the road we thought we'd be following isn't beneath us anymore, and our commitment to straight lines isn't serving us as nearly as we'd expected it to. The world has changed around us, and the same old patterns of moving forward just don't work anymore. When we insist on continuing to walk in straight lines, we run into walls, or the path is rocky, or the goal is nowhere to be found. Straight lines may allay our fears, but they don't serve us well for long. Sooner or later, our selfish and short-sighted commitment to them keeps us from following the crooked and often frightening paths that God has laid out for us. And that just... I just loved it completely, and I, I hope people are able to sort of hear it and process it, because I think he really brings a, a good point. I love that, Emma. That was terrific. Keep sharing. 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, if you just think like, and I know a lot of your listeners probably live in Utah, so next time the weather's nice, I want you to go up on top of a hill or a mountain where you can climb up, hike up there, and I want you to stand and I want you to look out at the world and I want you to notice where the straight lines are. Because I guarantee you will not see straight lines in the mountains or in the fields or grass or rivers or lakes. You will see them in the human cities, the roads that we build. Right? God's creation isn't straight. He doesn't deal with straight lines. And I don't think that, I think the binary is a straight line. I think that's our human desire to put things in straight lines to put them in square little boxes that we can understand and feel comfortable with and then when we interact with things that are outside that our initial thought is fear our initial reaction can be fear and and i don't think there's anything wrong with that but i i don't think that operating from that place of fear is what really lends itself to living a Christ-like life. Christ didn't interact with the rejects of society out of fear, but with love and compassion. I mean, if you just think about who his disciples were, who his closest companions were, I mean, they were they were people that were poor, that were laborers. I mean, you know, Matthew wrote a gospel, and Matthew was a tax collector. And there was pretty much nothing lower in the world that you could be in the eyes of Jewish people than to be a tax collector for the Romans. And yet, he entrusted him to write a gospel. Like, it, it's... I don't think that... Excluding people because they don't fit in our boxes is what he would have wanted us to do. I agree. Um, I've got some comments, but I want to keep you talking if you have more things you want to share with our listeners, Emma. Um, why don't you go over the comments? I only have one or two things left, and then we can probably wrap up. But I'm curious to know what your comments are. Just, I, I, I love what Emma's sharing with us listeners. and um, it, I think of, here's some things I have, just kind of a random list. Elder Oakdorf um, in his conference talk in 2013 called Four Titles. He says, sometimes we confuse differences in personality with sin. We may even make the mistake of thinking that because someone is different from us, it must mean they are not pleasing to God. Now, he wasn't talking about transgender, but he was teaching a principle that um, I think that applies to this space that you're different than me. I'm, <laughs> I'm cis, you're trans, but doesn't mean that like you were sharing with us, you're a mistake or that you're displeasing to God or that something went wrong. I think cis and trans people need to be on the same moral footing that they're created as intended and there should be no shame and our society should equally support. And I'm calling trans people people that really have long-term gender dysphoria um, and have transitioned to some point. Um, second thought is, I love the scripture, perfect love casteth out fear. I had fear of trans people, listeners, before I met trans people. <laughs> and I don't have fear of trans people anymore. Um, so they're some of my best friends. 
And they teach me things about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about compassion, grace, and empathy. And our church is better off and my life is better off. My life is better off with my trans friends and I believe our church is too. Um, It's an ongoing restoration. Um, I serve in the temple and every time I go to the temple, I learn something new. And every time I listen to a queer Latter-day Saint, I learn something new. And um, we've recently had some changes in the temple. This podcast has been recorded in the second week of February. And those of you that are LDS and go to the temple, talk about President Nelson and um, his vision that the restoration is ongoing. Take your vitamins. And I think we're seeing that in multiple areas of the church. And I hope and pray we continue to receive line upon revelation to better support trans Latter-day Saints, because in general, they're not having the same experiences as cis Latter-day Saints. And so there's just more work to do there. And that doesn't imply I know what God's will is, listeners, or I'm a leader of the church. I just am okay that this is just an area where we have work to do. And it's a new area. And um, so that's the way I look at this. Um, Another comment I wanted to make is I saw a Twitter feed. Um, and it's, it's 18 tweets and I'm going to try to narrow it down. Um, it's a public tweet. It's not from somebody who's public. They've made an account called former LDS Sunday school. Um, can't read the rest of it. Um, but this is, it looks like a gentleman who has a transgender son who stepped away from the church. So one of the things that this tweet teaches is how we should treat Um, the parents of trans kids, because often how we treat them will affect if they want to stay in the church or not, um, in addition to how we treat transgender Latter-day Saints. So this, I share this in the spirit of when we know better, we do better. Um, Last, So I'll just read a series of tweets here, listeners. Last week, we got invited to a ward's friend's house for a celebration of their daughter's engagement. We were thrilled. It was the first invitation that someone's house received in quite a long time. Um, When we pulled in the street, we saw dozens of cars. It was the who's who's of our ward and our stake. Our initial thought, now remember, this is a, um, looks like a couple that's not active. Oh crud, this is going to be an intervention, LOL. We came close to pulling the plug and leaving, but we decided to go in. Um, Walking in the big house filled with all these church members shook me in a good way. I can't begin to tell you how warm and comfortable it It felt to walk in and see my people, and he's capitalized that, my people. It felt like putting on my favorite sweater deep in the closet. The feeling commonly described as the spirit washed over me and my wife. It's hard to overstate how good we felt walking in to be greeted and embraced from friends we hadn't seen in years. It was instant reminder of just how hard it is to walk away from this. Truly, Mormons are good people, and the community is hard to beat. Enough time had gone by that there were new families in the ward. We chatted with the old timers, got caught up, and I could sense the legitimate care and concern for they had our kids, especially our queer kid. He's well-loved in the ward. Then it happened. And I hope this isn't triggering to you, Emma. I apologize. In the group, we were chatting with one of the new couples. One of the old timers started talking about how much fun she had with our son at girls camp. The new guy got confused, starting to pierce it, to pierce it, um, pierce, piecing it together. He said, hang on, your son is a girl. So we gave the appropriate response and he persisted. 
then she's a girl. It doesn't matter what you call her. She's a girl. We handled the situation very gently. We're well practiced at this. Then it happened. Slowly, each of the old timers started peeling away from the conversation. No one said anything. They simply walked away, leaving us to fend for our fend off the transphobic bore. <laughs> Suddenly, I remembered why we left. On an individual basis, our experience has been incredibly positive vis a vis our son's transition. Um, but when he called, but when called to defend himself, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, most members don't know how to do this. I remember how exhausting Sundays became. I remember how people would walk away anytime I corrected a homophobic or transphobic statement. I remember how people have, have the capacity to love but choose not to, and it made me incredibly sad. As my wife and I re relived our painful experience of walking away, it gained once again confirmation we had the right choice, and it's a damn shame for there are so many good people here. So it's, I've thought about that um, series of tweets a lot over the last week, listeners, and I just recognize when we know better, we do better. And we extend grace. If parents are um, just like I'm doing with Emma and Emma's Ward family and the church's website invites us to do is show Christ-like love, then we just show grace by honoring someone's pronouns and not defining them by their biological sex. And I'm sensitive to bring that up with Emma and any trans people because it's just sort of re-traumatizing to have to explain that again and again. And these parents we've lost, um, at least right now, and you can tell they love the church. And you, when they talk about that warm sweater, I feel that, um, but they don't feel um, the love that we should experience on a local level. It doesn't cost us anything to honor pronouns and to support trans people. And so um, I'm just looking through my notes. Um, that's kind of all I have, listeners. And the show notes will link to, on the church's website, will link to Emma's earlier episode 598. We'll link to my episode 601, where I just talked solo, as Emma's mentioned, to my trans friends. And Emma, I'll turn it back to you. That was... Perfect timing, actually. Maybe you did that on purpose because one of the last things I wanted to talk about was how to be an ally. And this is something that's been on my mind a lot. Um, and the thing you shared wasn't like triggering, but it did remind me of an experience that I had not all that long ago where I ran into something similar. Um, very different circumstances and I, i'm not gonna like throw anyone under the bus i don't i don't think that they deserve that but i you know in my local ward i'm allowed to go to relief society i go to the relief society events like this week <laughs> on thursday we had like a relief society you know, get together painting pictures of the savior, like, you know, it was a wonderful experience. And I was invited to that and allowed to participate and, you know, didn't have any negative experiences. So like on a local level, I have these wonderful people who, um, who really are very inclusive and they really do, you know, stand up for me. But I recently had an experience where I, was interacting with people in a you know in a 
in a virtual community space. Um, and it was a space that was intended for women only. And the person that was running it, um, you know, they, she knew that I was transgender and I had asked permission before entering. I didn't want to just like show up and be like, huzzah, I'm here, deal with it. I wanted to be really respectful of like, is it okay if I come to this? Because I know that this is specifically, you know, and this wasn't like an official church thing. It was just sort of like a community, like meeting all together. Um, And, you know, I was given permission to go and... And I did go, and it was wonderful. It was this really amazing, wonderful experience. It was something I very much look forward to every week because it happened every week. And, you know, I always left that meeting just so filled with the spirit and so just like it was, it was like church in the middle of the week. And it was something that I just really, really enjoyed doing. And then, um there was a point where we started sharing our social medias with each other so that we could follow each other and we could like share each other's content with people and I was brave and I put myself out there and I had quite a few people follow me um and I sort of had this like anxiety about it of like, okay, these women that I don't know very well who are members of the church are now all going to be very aware that I'm transgender because I don't hide it on my social media. I'm very open about it. And I was sort of like, I wonder if this is going to cause issues. And initially it didn't seem to because quite a few of them followed me. They still follow me. They are very kind, they're very affirming, and I was able to continue to go. And then suddenly out of nowhere, I was told that I couldn't come anymore because it was supposed to be only for women. And it was the same person that had given me permission before. And I was incredibly hurt by this because it 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 just was very confusing and I I don't know all the details my suspicion is that it was something similar in that someone became aware that I was transgender and they made a fuss about it or they had their thoughts or their feelings about it and they didn't express it to me directly they expressed it to her and I think that she did what those people in that story that you just read did of they all just sort of peeled off and that's what she did is she peeled off of you know didn't stand up for me didn't defend me didn't you know didn't lean into the discomfort and just sort of left me out to hang you know to dry and I, you know, I had to do some of my own like forgiveness work around that. And I, I do forgive her. I don't, I don't hold any animosity towards her, but it, it really, really solidified in my mind that allyship is incredibly important for our members of the church who are trans or queer or gay or lesbian that, that, Without that, like it's 
heartbreaking. I don't I don't blame that family for not wanting to be part of the church because people won't stand up for them. And I just I don't know. I think and I think people don't know how to be an ally. They just they want to support them, but then you know they don't they don't quite know how to put rubber to the road on that. And I think a big part of it is being willing to lean into the discomfort and defend us. I mean, I have this wonderful experience in my local ward because I had wonderful women lean into the discomfort and defend me and say, no, she belongs here. And that is not the case everywhere in the church. If I had any one major criticism of the church policies in the handbook is that I understand why they keep things kind of vague when it comes to trans people and how they can participate and show up in the church and like i understand why they do it and i think it causes damage because my experience isn't the experience of most people i am very fortunate in my ward and if i move at some point in my life i may not be very fortunate I might end up in a ward where they don't want me to be at Release Society and they don't want me to participate and they don't protect me. And so I think allyship is so, so important. So great. If she had just said, no, this person belongs here. You know, you can bring up your concern to them directly. Like, I would have talked to this person. I would have had a conversation with whoever expressed their concerns, but... I never got that opportunity. So So that's what that made me think of. It's a really honest last segment, Emma. And um, yeah, our jobs as allies are to use our privilege to help people feel like they belong. You've had some wonderful vocabularies. You did that last segment. Um, Would Jesus peel off? Um, I think of the visual, I think of what you talked about at the beginning of the podcast, Emma, with Christ and his ministry. Would Jesus peel off from you? Or another question we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? And then think about how he treated everybody in his ministry. Um, I love that this idea of what we need to do as allies is to lean in and create a feeling of belonging. Elder Christofferson talks about the doctrine of belonging, but activating that means we might have to feel a little uncomfortable listeners and it might be more comfortable for us to not have trans people in our lives or at church, but it may be part of creating Zion and, um, and getting us where we need to be for the second coming of Christ to help all of heavenly father's children feel like they belong. And it may, I know when I feel uncomfortable, that's sometimes the personal growth I need to go through to become a better disciple that I continue to try to do. So, Emma, anything else you want to say? Just last paragraph, last phrase, or last whatever paragraph, one one or two more minutes, then we'll sign off. I'll keep it short. (laughs) Um, So, in that conversation I had with my friend, who's the doctor, um, you know, he presented this sort of dichotomy that I found super interesting. And I don't know that he intentionally did it, but he sort of framed things in the terms of like, 
differences between Mormon culture and Latter-day Saint culture. And I think like that really resonated with me as I've been thinking about all of this of like Mormon culture, right? You know, we were instructed a few years ago to stop referring to it as the Mormon church or the LDS church and to refer to it as, you know, Church of Jesus Christ or the Latter-day Saint church. And I I don't know that this is necessarily exactly the intention behind that change, but my guess is that we're trying to shift that culture. We're trying to shift away from some of the honestly kind of toxic aspects of Mormon culture and trying to navigate into a a slightly different Latter-day Saint culture. And that's sort of how I'm going to think about it from now on of, is this Mormon culture or is this Latter-day Saint culture? Because Mormon culture was, you know, a time in the church where the vast majority of people lived in white English-speaking or European countries. And as the church continues to grow all around the world in various different cultures, that's not the case anymore. And I think part of the adjustment and change that we're doing culturally is going to include this LGBTQ stuff. So that's just my last thought, I guess. That's a really good distinction. You've got so much good stuff. So listeners, um, we'll sign off. I think we could keep this conversation going longer. Um, Em and I just invite you to act on the impressions you felt during this podcast to improve the experience as if you're an ally and hopefully if you're trans or somewhere in the queer community, the things that Emma shared um, will help you find more hope and more purpose in your way forward. So Emma Edwins and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>